We have looked last week at our enemy. And for some of you, probably was uh, more than you wanted to hear. Maybe others a little less than. Uh, and hopefully that balance is there. Uh, you might say, well, why do we have to spend a whole time on who the enemy is? We pretty much have a good handle on that. Uh, and yet we find there's a lot of misinformation. And we're going to see how it's played out today in our response to the enemy of our faith, uh, the evil one, uh, Satan, the devil. And so we come to understand that once we know who he is, the limits of his power and authority and activity, uh, and by what mechanism we have the victory, which is not us, but the work of Jesus Christ, not only for us, but also the victory was uh, enabled by the blood of Jesus Christ for even the angelic victory over Satan and the other fallen angels. And so we recognize the necessity of Christ's sacrifice, that we must trust in that. Uh, but we also know that the enemy had, does have great power, and he is filled with a great hatred, not only of God, but of mankind. And that he is no one's friend, not even those who align themselves with him. Is he really their benefactor? It always leads to destruction because that is what he desires for mankind because we are that which he cannot attain. The image and likeness of our creator. So we come this morning and to examine our response and we have hinted at this last week, even, and we have to, because you can't do a study of him without necessarily talking about our engagement with him, our relationship toward him. And so we come to these very specific instructions, and we want to look at them this morning. And then we're going to be looking at, again, because I think it's important that we clarify this, as some misinformation is being out there, that is being taught for Christians to engage in, and that is really none of our place to do, and actually brings us into a position of great danger, as we are going to see. So let's look at what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 5. We already have seen, and now we want to persist in verse 8, to be sober and be vigilant. That we begin by these states of being which is very different than a response. This is very different than an action. This is two state of being verbs that we want to be in this condition continually, that we be sober-minded. And literally, in the Greek, it's really tied to that word that is in Galatians 2.20 about being self-controlled. It's not just about not being under the influence of alcohol or drugs, that kind of soberness, and it's not even just the concept of seriousness. It's the idea of being uh, able to employ all the capacities that God has given us, to have them at our disposal, to have ourselves in the disciplines of life able to engage in this warfare. Not only the disciplines of physicality, we often think of physical training, but of spiritual training, of mental training, and I would even contend of, of the, the training of our affections, and so that we love not the world, neither things that are in the world, but, and we recognize that there is a great dichotomy there. We, we cannot engage the enemy as though while we live in his world but that we must identify ourselves as ones who are of another kingdom. And so this sober-mindedness, this being sober, is to have this self-awareness and self-possession that I am ready to be engaged. My body and my mind, my spirit is trained and is uh, has all of the requirements to engage in this battle. All that backdrop. So that sober-mindedness, that being sober, 
is that whole idea of being well-trained, that we have trained ourselves, that we are in this condition that my mind is alert, and that's going to come out really a lot more in the whole idea of vigilance, and that I am ready to engage in this, that, that it doesn't take me by surprise. I am not ever caught off guard by the evil one and his tactics. And we're going to see that come out in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians here in a little bit. And so this is the, a state of being that God expects us to always have this condition about us of self-possession. That I am trained, I am ready, my faculties are engaged and are at the disposal of the Holy Spirit, of God, of the church to engage in this warfare. So that's being sober. State of being is something that I should be carrying with me all about whether I'm engaging in the enemy currently or not, that I have this, this capacity of self-possession. We then go to the next statement, which is a further statement, being vigilant. And this is given over and over and over. This, this word is used regularly in God's word. Sometimes it's, it's be watchful, be alert, be vigilant. Be aware of your surroundings. So as the first word is a state of condition of having self-possession. So I have these skill set that I have trained in and I possess. And I have that capacity to use them. I, I, I am not uh, unlearned in these techniques and requirements to engage in this warfare. I have practiced them. It is like the soldier that goes out there and, and has to learn all of his weapons and all of the tactics that he has to, that he can take his weapon apart and put it back together blindfolded. He has that much familiarity with his weaponry. And this is what that first word calls us to, of having our own selves ready. That we are in a perpetual condition that is uh, truly like riding a bicycle. Once we possess those, now we have those, and we are ready when they are called upon to put them into force. They may appear to be latent, but we recognize that they are, when they are called upon that they need to be ready. And that's why they need to be practiced. They need to be trained. They need to be uh, regularly uh, uh, addressed in our lives. Be disciplined, be sober, but also be vigilant. This is a state of being alert to your surroundings. The first one deals with you. Am I well trained? Am I ready to engage? Do I know the warfare tactics of God's word? Do I know God's word? Do I have all those things? But also, am I vigilant and am I being alert to the surroundings around me? Am I aware of my circumstances? This is vigilance, uh, and this is not just occasionally, this is all the time. Whether you are in your home, whether you are in your church, whether you are in the workplace, whether you are in the neighborhood, wherever you are, that we are vigilant, recognizing that we have an enemy that can bring to bear temptation and his fiery darts, as Ephesians 6 describes them, in any of those environments, that we do not let down our guard. That I am always constantly aware of what's going on. That I recognize that the world has joined itself with its own enemy, Satan, in battling against God. And therefore, as they are God's enemy, they are my enemy. But I do not treat them as an enemy, but yet I, because God loves them and died for them, but I am aware that they view me as their enemy, and I am wary, I am alert, I am careful. And this is understanding who you're dealing with, whether it be the world, whether it be Satan himself, the demonic host, or whether it be your own flesh, that we recognize that we are engaged in a battle, and that we are always cautious. We do not let down our guard. That's vigilance. So one is about self-possession, making sure I'm ready to be engaged, and then being alert to the environment of when I need to put these abilities, these uh, skill sets into play. And so we need to be alert to what is going on in the world. 
And it is appropriate that Christians do that to, to, and, and to do so wisely to recognize that while we are thankful for those in authority of us, we are thankful for government, we also recognize that government is something that Satan claims authority over. They are the nations that he offered to Jesus. Remember last week. That I have the authority of the nations behind me and I will have all the nations serve you if you bow down and worship me, he says to Jesus. His claim of authority is over the nations. And so we are not ignorant of that fact. So when we see nations' activity, when we see the activity of the economy, when we see the activity of philosophies, and we see the activities within education, we are not ignorant and we aren't naive about what they have in mind. It is against the truth of God's word. And so we have to be vigilant. We have to walk carefully. We have to uh, mind our step. Uh, when I go down, even though my animals are very familiar with me, and I daily have to feed them and engage with them, when I'm in the pen with eight yaks uh, that all have horns and are all bigger than me, um, I'm vigilant. Now, are they all afraid of me? Yes, I made sure of that over time to make sure that they have a sense of, of this guy's the alpha and we don't want to mess with him because he'll throw us on the ground and things like that. So I, I trained them when they were young to be like that. But I'm still vigilant when I'm in there because all it takes is for one of them to be playful with me and I can be injured. Because when and this one back here is the worst one because she loves to be playful with you. And, and now playfulness when they've got horns and really hard skulls uh, becomes dangerous. So I have to be vigilant. I, have, I always want to know. I, I don't, I'm not ready to turn my back on these animals uh, without some looking over my shoulder every now and make sure where they are. What are they doing? What's their disposition? I am being aware of the inherent dangers of the environment that I'm in. This is vigilance. If we understand the enemy and his authority and his realm, now we understand the necessity of vigilance as we engage the world. We cannot just skip to Maloo and, and engage with the world and be like them and participate in all the things that they offer us um, without discernment. Without thinking, well, some of these things might be detrimental to my spiritual walk. Some of these things might, uh, I, I might be losing ground in the spiritual warfare that we are called to engage in for me to simply embrace these things without some recognition they have not your well-being in mind. This is vigilance. These are two states of being that you are called upon. To maintain your capacity to engage in battle and to be aware always of your surroundings. So this is just the condition that every good follower of Jesus Christ should be in all the time. I have self-possession and I'm aware of what's going on around us, that we are engaged in a warfare and the enemy is deceitful, the enemy is experienced, and the enemy is full of hate. And we respond likewise. That's why the Bible says to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. You have to be ready to engage. Not to do harm, but for protection. That brings us to the next active verbs that we are called upon when we get to verse 9. So we are not ignorant of the devil. He is looking to devour who we may. We come to verse 9. It says, resist him. And as I shared last week a little bit, and we're going to get into a lot today, um, this is a somewhat, this is an active verb describing really a passive response. This is a, resist him is not remove him, it is not attack him, it is you are 
in a defensive position and you are not permitting him to gain any ground in the territory of your heart, the territory of your life and of your relationships. Okay, let me, remind, let, let me review that. Your heart and your relationships. That you're not letting him gain ground there. Not just internally, but, but in, laterally in our relation with one another. And that's going to come to bear many times in Scripture that that is one of the places he wants to attack is our relationships. And that's where he can break us down spiritually and win a victory. Not over the war, but certainly in these battles. And so we are called to resist him. And so if we are vigilant about our surroundings and we are self-possessed of the training that is needed through God's word and its instruction in us, that we are thoroughly equipped in every good work. So when you get to those passages of Timothy, that's what they're talking about. Be equipped, be perfected, be, be, be complete and ready to engage in battle. That the engagement is one of a defensive nature. We are in his area during his time. We are called upon to be fishers of men, not destroyers of demons. We are here to engage mankind because God has sent his son to redeem them from their sin. They are redeemable. The fallen angels and the evil one are not. And their demise and their destruction, even their diminished power, is a work that must be accomplished by Jesus Christ, and he has promised to do so. We are simply called, while we are in this realm, to resist him, to stand against him, to hold ground. And that's what the word entails, that we are going to hold our ground. It is that one who is not a, not a little twig floating in a stream, but a rock that is planted in the middle of a mighty river that will not move. That is the difference. We're not just floating along down the stream, whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera, somebody told me last week. Um, and I'm like, no, if you have that attitude, you are not being a vigilant warrior. A vigilant warrior that's ready to engage is called to resist, to stand fast, recognizes that I am against a stream, that I am moving upstream, that I'm moving against the flow of all the world. And when Christians stopped trying to resist the flow of the world, and we just wanted to get along and look like, sound like, act like, and engage in everything the world has, because we didn't want to stick out we violated this instruction. Resist the devil. Resist him. If you know what he's up to and you know his purposes, you know his ways, then you should be engaged in that process of standing against it. Now, when you resist against something with the force and power and, and persistence, and that's why I like to use a river flow, um, you know that it takes a very different stand than just standing when you have nothing to go against. That you have to lean forward, that you have to brace yourself, that you have to make sure you have a good footing. All of these things are necessary as part of resisting Satan. We not just sit there and, and lightly engage in this. It's not something that's uh, just a state of being. You have to actively do that. When you step from the shore into a river, you recognize immediately that you have to be ready for what's for the flow. Not to go with it. If you're not ready for it, you will always be swept away, won't you? <laughs> Your feet will go off underneath you, and you're gone. Okay? But if you're ready to step into the flow and you recognize what that flow entails, you will brace yourself and you will recognize I'm called to stand in here to rescue those who are perishing in that flow. I don't go out there just for the enjoyment of it. I go out there with a mission. I am engaging in this warfare for a mission and that is to rescue those who are trapped 
in this flow of evil that God has called us to rescue. So I need to go out there, not to become one of them, not to be like them, uh, floating along with my feet in the air uh, with them is not going to solve their problem. It's just going to jeopardize me. Now I am in jeopardy of drowning. If you ever watch the rescue crews rescuing people out of arroyos, are they braced? Are they ready? Do they have to get down in the water to rescue those people? Yes, they get down in the water, but look at all the preparations and all of the, all of the uh, safety measures they've taken. They have all this equipment on them. They've got people up there. They've got ropes. They've got all this stuff going on to rescue one person out of the area. It takes 12. With all this equipment, all of this training to get down into that fast-moving water to extract somebody out of that. This is our calling. We do not go in there to stop the flow. We do not go in there to redirect it. We go in there to stand in it, to rescue those who are being swept away by it. Pastor, how can I do that? Well, you're going to have to be really well equipped, and you're going to have to have some help, aren't we? To be able to stand in that kind of flow. That's why church is so critical in resisting the devil, of being with the body of Christ and being trained in his word, and that we, we recognize the power of that and the, the, as the weapon of the armor of God. And so we, we fully armor ourselves before we engage in that. And we are ready to resist. Not because we enjoy it, because usually it comes to us while we are engaging in this battle for the souls of men. We do not, on a whim, jump into the fast flow of evil of this world. We do it as a mission of mercy towards those who are already swept in it. And so we stand in a position of resistance Bracing ourselves and having a right foundation. And this comes out in many places in God's word. Let's turn with, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to look a little bit further about how to do this. To be prepared, to be self-possessed that I may be able to resist the devil. Paul's talking here. And we did study some of the passages last week. We're going to revisit them in Ephesians, particularly this morning. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> the situation and the relationship within that church was that there had been some heinous sin. And that is something that happens within churches, within lives. We have individuals that get caught up in sin. We have a directive to jump in the stream and rescue them, <laughs> okay? But while we're doing that, we're trying to be careful not to be swept away in that same stream. And that takes a lot of preparation and vigilance, okay? So we're going to do that. And the Corinthian church did that under the instruction of Paul from 1 Timothy, and this person repented and now we're having a little problem of how do we reincorporate this person back into our church? And should we? How do we trust someone who's been swept away in the past? And so this is what Paul addresses. Let's begin in verse 3 of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. 
For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything I also forgive for if indeed I have forgiven anything I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul in this occasion where we are engaging and trying to rescue one of our own who has fallen victim to the currents of evil that swirl around us and can easily sweep any of us off our feet if we are not careful. When we deliver such a one, when we rescue them, he said, listen, you are still susceptible. Satan isn't done just because you have drug him to shore and you're all laying there soaking wet on the shore, exhausted. Now you are still in danger. Because Satan's devices aren't over. Why would we recognize that? Because we're vigilant. <laughs> we're aware that we do not let our guard down even in that situation. And so for him, he saw that the people were being somewhat unforgiving and unloving towards this person, that they, he, should, he should be really paid for this. He, he brought so much grief upon us, he should have a lot of grief put on him. Uh, he's got to make up this. And the realization that um, when we have an unloving, bitter, and unforgiving environment, we are laying a foothold for Satan himself. So when we talk about establishing ourselves, and we're going to be looking at another passage here, some of the things we normally think about, I want to make sure we start here recognizing why our relationships matter. Because oftentimes that is where Satan gains the easiest foothold is when there are relationships that are strained and broken within our homes, within our churches, and yes, even in general society. That is why Satan loves division and warfare. He loves that. He is a fomenter of that. Whereas the Christian community comes in and we are called to be of a different ilk. We are called to bring, to bring forgiveness, to bring restitution and, and, and reunion. We are called to, to restore individuals to uh, the, the fellowship of the saints not by ignoring sin, but by addressing sin and then uh, helping eradicate it from people's lives. This process involves a lot of risk on our part of hurt and injury, and we don't let that persist. We don't let that cling to us, and that's why we are told to not let any root of bitterness, to pull out any root of bitterness out of our hearts. Why? Because that is a place where Satan can catch us. He says, listen, Satan's going to take advantage of you, of us. This is one of his devices to come in and strain relationships and then out of those hurt feelings, to use hurt feelings to destroy our fellowship fellowship of the saints, and thereby destroying our testimony to the world and incapacitating us from being able to rescue anyone else. Satan has devices for the church as well. So we need to be vigilant here too. Am I careful of my relationships and what's entailed in being a loving family, which means I'm going to be careful to be forgiving I'm going to be careful with my words and how I say them. I'm going to be considering others better than myself. All those principles we find in all those other scriptures about our relationships. They are there to defend us from Satan's devices. We don't often think about that, but it is, I think, one of the more important areas that needs to be vigilantly defended and self-possessed of the church. We are not ignorant of his devices, are we? But I think a lot of churches are ignorant. And that's why they're being swept away into sin, into bitterness, into division um, over these things. And so we resist him. 
We understand that we are standing against a current that could sweep us away, and so we have to have that foundation. Let's look at what that foundation entails. Let's stay in 2 Corinthians. We can go to a lot of passages. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians. I really want to, no, I don't really want to get to this passage yet, but we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians 6. Are you prepared, okay, to resist? And again, we read this last week in, in the Armor of God passage as we studied about who the enemy is, the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, heavenly places in verse 12. And then again, we looked and, and emphasized the repeated command from verse 11 all forward to stand. Stand against him, stand your ground, withstand, stand therefore, and uh, quench the fiery darts. And even the idea of quenching the fiery darts is that they have to be fired at you and you're just putting them out as they come. As they are fired at you, you're quenching them. You're just dousing them. They're gone. And so we have this repeated instruction. Stand, 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 stand. What do we use to stand? Well, that's what the armor of God is all about. That we have that helmet of salvation, we have the, the breastplates of righteousness, we have the shield of faith, we have the feet shot of the preparation of the gospel of peace, we have the, the, the belt of truth, the girt about our waist, drawing it all together, we have the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, we have these tools available to us. But we have to be trained in them, don't we? We have to be familiar with them, and that's that whole idea of soberness. Self-possession, I'm ready, I'm engaged. I have the training in all of these things, which means I have to maintain these aspects of my armor. I have to maintain my helmet of salvation. Yes. Say, oh no, once you pray the sinner's prayer, you're all done with that part. No, we have to maintain it, it's self, uh, our possession of it, to understand our salvation and to fully uh, know it and to uh, live it in every aspect of our being, the working and the power of God in our deliverance and redemption. The breastplate of righteousness, that we are going to maintain it. And again, as we just saw in 1 Corinthians 2, the devastation that comes when we have carnality enter into our lives, into our families, and then into our churches. What it does to our testimony and our capacity to stand against the devil. We have to maintain personal righteousness uh, at, um, at a family level, at a church level, at all of these, we need to maintain righteousness. Is that something that we put on once and then we can just tarnish it by just participating in sin all the time? Rather, we are called to keep it maintained in our lives. I understand that it is the righteousness of Christ applied to us but there is an aspect of sanctification that requires your participation in being righteous. And you cannot miss the instructions throughout God's word to walk in a manner worthy of your salvation, of your calling. And then, of course, the belt of truth. And wow, how preciously important is that as it ties together so much of what you do as a soldier that we are encompassed with truth. And we're going to be looking at that here in a little bit in 2 Corinthians. We go back into there. And the necessity of immersing ourselves in truth. Now, God's word is truth. There's no doubt about that, that we are, need to be immersed in his word. Um, but that's really coming later when we talk about the uh, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so what is the distinction between the word of God as a sword of spirit and the, my belt of truth? Well, it is that application of God's word to my life that it is not just something I'm using in a weaponry, an offensive way. It is something I'm using in a defensive way that I am held together by this. It is that, and I 
on a day I forgot to wear a belt. That we have the truth that connects it all in our life. That we aren't disjointed from God's word. That there's a consistency in our philosophy of life. There's a consistency in our behavior, in our speech, in our attitudes that is in agreement with truth. Now the world says there is no truth. There's no absolute truth. Your truth is truth for you. My truth is truth for me. And, we, and you know, we'll never see eye to eye. That's, that's nonsense and everybody knows it. They are self-deceived. We are called to truth, to be agents of truth. We're going to be looking at that, as I said, a little bit later on. And then we want to talk about the, <clears throat> the feet being shod, the preparation of the gospel of peace. That we recognize our mission. And this is not just self-serving, this armor that we put on. It's not just to protect me. It's to enable me to engage in the mission that my commander has given me. And that is to be agents of the kingdom of God. To deliver men out of the strong currents of the evil one and of sin. And then we cannot miss that verse 16 begins with the words above all. So we're going to spend a little bit, little bit of time on above all. The shield of faith. Um, and again, we could go to many, many passages of Scripture to define and understand faith. Jesus Christ calls his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. If you but had the faith of a mustard seed, here's the kinds of things you could do. Do you remember that conversation he had? And we recognize, hopefully, what that contributes to this statement that above all, take the shield of faith. A shield is overwhelmingly a defensive armament, like the breastplate and the helmet. Um, doesn't mean it can't be used in an offensive way, but primarily it is a defensive thing. And so we are called upon, above all, to take this shield of faith. Hebrews talks about faith. What is faith? Well, it's the, it's the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. We usually look at that verse and we say, we see the word unseen and hoped for, and we don't see the word evidence and substance. Faith is visible. It is recognizable. That when you approach uh, another soldier uh, that is well equipped and armed, the first thing you will recognize that what you will see of his defenses is his shield. It is the visible part of your Christian walk is your faith. Well, how you are trusting in Christ. What, because it's evidence in your walk. You can't go through Hebrews 11 and not conclude that faith equals action. By faith they did things, correct? Whether it be offering up their son Isaac, whether it be uh, crossing rivers, whether it be engaging armies, whatever, whether it be enduring persecution, which is what Peter's focusing on here, we're going to see next week much more of. This is our faith in action. You cannot say you have faith and have no evidence of it in your life. You say you have faith. Well, where is it? Show it to me. And this is what James tells us, doesn't he? You say you have faith. You say you believe these things. Show it to me. Because your faith without works is a dead faith because it's not vital to you. If you have a shield and it's laying on the ground, it's going to do you no good. If it's sitting back in your tent in the encampment, instead of out here in front of you, engaged in the battle, it will do you no good. When the enemy comes upon an army, it will see the shields. It is the first thing they should see. And for uh, your ultimate defense, it should almost be the only thing they ever see. 
Well, what is it, according to James? It's your good works. That I am working the activity of the kingdom of God. It is so important in your battle to stand, to persist in doing what is good. Though nobody applauds you for it, though no one thanks you for it, though there might not seem any other benefit, we persist in doing what is godly and good and right because we know that there is a heavenly reward, but because this is our faith in action. I will keep preaching and keep preaching and keep preaching, though no one listened to me. This is the testimony of the prophets who trusted in God. Though you imprison me, though you uh, throw dirt at me, though you call me names, though you uh, kill me, I will persist in preaching the truth of God to you. Will it cost me my head, like it did John the Baptist? Perhaps. But I'm going to preach God's word. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to proclaim him. I am going to do the works of my Father. That's my shield of faith. Not just, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I am tired of hearing people tell me what they believe and showing me nothing of what they believe. Because they live their life in fear. They live their life in in despair. They live their life just like the world. And I'm like, where's your faith? Oh, I believe in God. I was like, prove it. Because I don't find any evidence. I don't find any substance to your statement. If it's a shield, it should be visible right out in front. It should lead the way. It goes before you. I think there's a Bible verse that says that. That your works go before you. You're following behind them. What does the world see in your life? Does it see us living like them with fear and ignorance and confusion and doubt? Oh boy, does Satan love to use doubt, doesn't he? No, we are called to have this first of all. Make sure, above all, that you have the shield of faith. Because that's something the wicked one cannot move against. Fiery darts are arrows that lit on fire. And if you ever watch any of those ancient battles where that was a primary weapon, you know how they defended against it. They would huddle in a group, they would take their shields, and they would turn themselves into a giant turtle. Everyone shielded and locked with one another's shield. As the arrows came in, no one got hit unless somebody's shield wasn't in the right place and it made an opening. And then it became a danger to the person right below the shield, which was the one who moved it where it didn't belong. But that's how you defend. And it says, listen, your shield, your faith is exactly what you need to have self-possession of. Remember, be sober. Self-control. Do you have that in your life? Are you strengthening it? Are you practicing it? Are you wielding it on such a regular basis that it is just a natural part of who you are? This is what is required to be able to stand fast in the end days. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians We were in chapter 2, now we jump to chapter 10. And here I have to deal with some error. We come to a passage that I find greatly abused. Maybe not so much in a lot of our circles, but in other circles of quote-unquote Christianity. They abuse this passage in chapter 10. Let's pick up verse 1. It says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. 4. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, 
and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, this is the one passage that's often used to say, well, this is our edict from our commanding officer to invade the enemy's camp and tear down their strongholds. Uh, and that is nowhere in this passage, okay? Uh, do you see Satan, devil, demons, e anywhere in this passage? No, not at all. So when we talk about these strongholds, and I see how it is horribly abused, they view this as the enemy's camp, but that is not the reference point in the context here at all. In fact, the strongholds that he's talking about and the arguments and high things that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is within the church. Please notice that. He is talking about, I'm going to have to visit you and I'm going to have to deal with some issues among you as a carnal church and I don't fight this fight like the world. I don't do it in the flesh. We're not engaging in our stand together through these fleshly elements of having eloquent speakers and charismatic leaders. He says, I'm not any of those things. Because those are the weapons of the world. To sweep away foolish people. And I've heard Christians swept away into error by charismatic, eloquent, quote-unquote, preachers who spew out error. And people just gobble it up. Why? Because they're listening to flesh and blood and not spiritual truth. They are not engaged. They are not sober. They are not self-possessed with the training to recognize error when it comes, even if it comes from a very appealing source. Oh yes, that person speaks eloquently. I don't deny that. Oh yes, they, they, they are fashionable. They are attractive. They are charismatic. Um, and, and to some degree, their argumentation is, is agreeable to me and to my human wisdom. Uh, but I don't do what the Bereans do, did. They say, well, how does it compare to God's word? Let's put all the other things aside because those things are the world. Those things are the flesh. And we're not fighting this fight in the flesh. We're fighting it in the spirit. And so Paul says, listen, I'm not going to come to you with flattering words. I'm not going to come to you as an attractive person. He must have been pretty ugly. He'd been stoned at least once. Um, and I'm not going to come to you with all of this. I'm going to come to you with the truth. I'll, I'll, you can say I'm meek and, meek and gentle, um, but if I have to be bold, I'll be that way, if that's what it takes. But I prefer that you recognize that we're going to come in and we're going to pull down your strongholds. He's not threatening this against the, the, the evil one. He's saying, I have to do this in church. What are these strongholds? Oh, these are your firmly held beliefs that have no basis in Scripture. Because you have decided that truth comes from all sources and that we prefer that which comes from outside of God's word rather than what is in God's word. Oh, pastor, we don't do that. You do it all the time. I do it all the time. We rationalize it away so we can engage in the world on some level uh, and think we, we are being spiritual while we're doing it. The fact is, is that these strongholds that he's talking about here that once need to be pulled down are these belief systems that are in contradiction to God's word and are evidence of our pride, yes, our humanism, and the other philosophies of this world that have inundated our thinking. These strongholds are not Satan's camp. We're not told to invade that place. 
We are told to stand fast. And it's here that we have to break down and pull down these strongholds. Why are they so strong? Because we are so committed to them in our pride. I don't want to humble myself to the truth. I don't want to subject myself to that. Yes, pastor, you can read it in God's word. There it is, and it says it point blank. Da-da-da-da-da. I don't want to do that. That's a stronghold. That has to be pulled down. We can't pull it down in the flesh. This is a spiritual work. We have to have the might of God, and that's why the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God is to divide us, to cut us up, dividing bone from marrow, soul from spirit, that he has to do that penetrating work through God's word. I can't do it. Doesn't matter how eloquent or how fashionable or how well presented the argument, the, the, the messenger isn't the issue. The only way it's going to penetrate these strongholds that we hold to, that we persist in with, with stubborn rebellion against God's word, is through the might of God's word, the message, not the messenger. We can't do it by the flesh. Paul says, I can't penetrate these things. I'll try to be bold instead of gentle if that's what it takes, if that's the accusation. But fundamentally, it's not a fleshly war that we're engaged in. It's a spiritual one. We're coming to you with the might of God himself to say, this is wrong. And then it says, casting down arguments. Oh, you have your rationalizations for what you are stubbornly clinging to that is contrary to God's word? Surprise! Nothing new under the sun. They had them back then too. Oh, we have our reasoning. We have all these arguments and, and that, that, that support us in being disobedient to God's word perniciously. Oh, I could come up with them too. And a lot of times I do. And then I go, oh, foolish arguments. These reasons, they need to be cast down. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Do you notice it there? We're not talking about Satan. We're talking about engaging within the church that there is things going on, there are things being spoken that are actually in opposition to the knowledge of God. They are exalting themselves instead of God. They are against God. And Satan loves when this happens in the church. So we have a stronghold. Something that we are just cling to with all of our might. It wasn't produced in us from God's word or from spiritual history. It was produced from us usually from our culture. We inherit it from our culture. It's what my family's always done. It's what I was always taught when I was little. It's how the American way, blah, 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 blah. Whatever culture you want to pick, it's because I'm this color of skin. I don't know what that has to do with anything because you didn't have anything to do with that. Um, it's because I was born in this community, blah, 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 blah. You have these strongholds that you think uh, give you the right to stand in opposition to God's word and his truth. Okay, and now you have your reason, your argumentation, but ultimately it's all about your pride being vaulted up against the knowledge of God. You won't submit to the truth of the scriptures no matter how well it is presented to you. And this needs to be cast out of your life. This needs to be brought down. And what is the evidence that it is finally eradicated from us? Well, the rest of the passage says obedience. I surrender. I surrender. I will obey. I don't like it because I was raised in a feminist environment, and all of you were. Oh, women don't like this, don't like that, don't I don't care. Are you vaulting yourself against the knowledge of God? Oh, you have your arguments? Blah, 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 blah. God's heard them all before. What is the problem is it's a stronghold in you that makes 
Satan have a foothold to use your pride to destroy your spiritual walk or to prevent it from growing any further. You cannot grow spiritually any farther than you're willing to obey. You want me to say it again? You cannot grow spiritually any farther than you are willing to obey. Your obedience is the limiting factor in all of this. You can be well-schooled and, and have God's Word and have it memorized and engaged in and know how to handle it. You can, you can have that shield of faith, but if you are not obeying, and, and you can't have a shield of faith because it's going to be sitting back in the camp uh, under your bed because you're not actively doing it. Obedience, ultimately, we've seen it in almost every passage, I just haven't emphasized it, is the training we need to stand against the evil one. I'm going to obey the knowledge of God. I'm going to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And I'm going to have my obedience fulfilled, complete, before I start attacking and addressing the disobedience of others. We are all easily critical of others and seldom as critical of ourselves, are we? Until our obedience is in line with the knowledge that we have of God, we will not gain the spiritual victory in our warfare. This has nothing to do with attacking Satan's camp. It's about dressing ourselves. And this is part of the resisting the devil. And that's what brings out in 1 Peter 5 the last word that we want to look at, and that is steadfast in the faith. Are we steadfast in the faith? And we think of steadfastness as persistence, and certainly that is one element there. But we cannot divorce the fact that it is required of obedience, not once, but, but ongoing. I am going to continue to be obedient. And as I discover through my study of the knowledge of God and the investigation of my faith and the exercise of my faith through good works that I have areas of my life that aren't in compliance with the directives of my commanding officer. I'm going to bring them into compliance to him. I'm going to walk in obedience. This is what is called steadfastness. So we have resisting the evil one and being steadfast in my relation with the righteous one. You want to resist the devil? Submit to the God. It's that simple. Submit to God, resist the devil. They, you cannot have one without the other. If we have these strongholds in our life, if we have these argumentation against being obedient to simple things in God's word, how could we ever engage or think that we're going to have any victory in spiritual warfare against the evil one when we won't even break down ourselves to be obedient to our commanding officer, so-called? The fact is we want to be our own commanding officers. We want to do it the way we want to do it. And Paul says, this is the problem in a carnal church. And the Christian community largely is carnal. You want to find out? You want to talk about going against strongholds and going against arguments and going against um, all these philosophies? Just try to engage people on spiritual matters on social media. Disagree with somebody. If you've ever followed me on social media very far, you know that most all of my comments are against posts. I seldom comment in favor of posts. And I had one person that get mad at me and unfriend me for that very reason. They actually stated that. And I was like, that's exactly what I do. Why are you like that? You just like picking a fight. You're against everything. No, I just see a lot of 2 Corinthians 10 in our social media and exposes it. John the Baptist went around, preached to everybody, repent, didn't he? Cost him his head. Maybe if he had moderated himself and just every 
half the time said repent and made sure that half the time he, he put a thumbs up. Maybe it wouldn't have cost him his head. But the fact is, is, is that we spew out this stuff on social media and, and it's like, uh, my kids are used to this terminology, is, is diarrhea of the brain is what it is. That's all it is. Unthought through and unexamined and, and never thinking, is this in line with God's word? Is this, is this have any connection to truth? Is this worth promoting? We don't find that. Go sit down, young people. What we find instead is all of this just being plunked out there. And I want to see how many likes I get. And so I write. And, it's, and, and you want to see how resistant people are to that? Who do you think you Judge, judge, judge. Don't judge me. Blah, blah, blah. And it goes on, 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 on. I have one person, two people. And in fact, I did it this week. Because I, I, I just, he posted something, I'm like, oh man, this is really bad. And I know this person to be against Calvinism, but he posted this, well, God's already decided before he created anything when everybody's going to die, so it doesn't matter whether you take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine, because you're going to die whenever God has de- designed, designated that you're going to die. I'm like, this is not true. Okay. So you believe that we should support your decision or whether you take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine because you cannot change the day that God is destined for you to die. And I was like, based upon that, I should also respect the choice of everyone that commits suicide and everyone that commits murder. Because the end result of those actions is also death, which apparently, according to this position, means that God has decided that they should die then, and so who are we to resist that? It was an error of argument. How are you going to respond now? You've got a preacher on there sitting there. Do, 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 do. How are you going to react? Well, this person happens to be a Filipino. He removed the post, sent me a message, says, thank you so much. I didn't see it. You know why? Because he doesn't have strongholds in his life. He wants to be obedient to the knowledge of God. And so he corrects himself. I have a very old friend, very smart. Who posted a foolish thing. That he's going to pray for Paul. Because God operates outside of time, so we should pray for people in the past. So he's using his prayer time to pray not for me or you or the he's praying for Paul. Paul's dead. He's asleep. He's in the presence of uh, but this friend is and he posted this on Facebook and all these people, oh this is so incredibly blah 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 blah. You know, and it's it's intellectualism that has totally displaced truth. And one person sat there and on a very lengthy post, explained why this was complete hogwash and error. Me. Nobody liked my post. Nobody. Zero. I had many respond, and he didn't like it. And he responded, oh, you no, 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 no. He knew better because he has strongholds in his life. Because for him, truth is science not God's word. And he isn't obedient to the knowledge of God. Resist, yes. Resist the devil. He'll flee. Put your shield of faith out there, but be steadfast in the faith. That means that these strongholds, these argumentations that we use, this intellectual prowess that we think we have that permits us to be disobedient to the knowledge of God, this is just pride. And it must be eradicated if we're going to have any victory in this warfare. And shame on people for using that passage to entice Christians to go take on Satan and, and 
and engage his camp. The strongholds that Paul was dealing with were right inside the church, and they're here today. They persist because of our pride. And praise the Lord for the humble that are willing to receive the correction of God's word. I have received that correction from other pastors and from other people that come and say, hey, is, you're not, here's what the Bible says, what are you doing about it? And I'm like, nothing. I'm sorry. You're right. I have no argument. This needs to be our response of a hum, humble surrender. This is what it means to be steadfast in the faith. Immovable. Not in my own stronghold, in my firmly held beliefs that I was raised in from traditions from my fathers, but no, in humble submission to God's word. This is steadfastness. Don't confuse these two things. It's too dangerous. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth, and we thank you for your word, and we pray you might help us to stand. Being well-trained in the instruments that you've given us to fight this battle, and being vigilant of the circumstances around us, Lord, help us to stand and to be steadfast, not just to be against the evil one, but to be for you. All of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.